Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Banyasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to the Land Ethic. Uh, a few quick things before we get started. If you're enjoying the show, please consider leaving a positive review on iTunes or wherever you listen to help the show get found by other people. Um, similarly, you can share it on social media. That always helps as well. Appreciate you guys doing that. And um, if you've got suggestions, criticisms, ideas for guests or, or topics, please uh, don't hesitate to reach out at Land Ethic Podcast on Instagram. Enough of that. This week, I spoke with Brian Yablonski, the CEO of the Property and Environment Research Center, or PERC, based in Bozeman, Montana. PERC is a research institute dedicated to exploring how voluntary trade can produce positive environmental outcomes. They refer to this approach as free market environmentalism. As for Brian, early in his career, he was Director of Policy and Deputy Chief of Staff for Florida Governor Jeb Bush, where he helped craft the administration's major policy initiatives, including Everglades Restoration and the Florida Forever Conservation Program. From 1989 to 1990, he worked in the West Wing of the White House as a personal staff assistant to President George H.W. Bush. He was previously chairman of the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission prior to joining PERC. I'm really excited about the kind of work these guys are doing and uh, their, their general approach to environmentalism, which focuses on pragmatic market solutions and aims to minimize government involvement and in all of the bureaucracy that follows. So we discussed PERC's mission and values, Brian's career path, the concept of free market environmentalism, current topics of research at PERC, including wildfires and forest management, wildlife livestock conflict, western water rights, and uh, finally, Brian's take on some of the new administration's environmental initiatives. Head over to perk.org, P-E-R-C.org, to learn more and offer your support. I'm joined by Brian Yablonski. Brian, am I pronouncing that right? You, you are. Okay, well done. Good. <laughs> so you're the CEO of uh, PERC. For people who don't know about PERC, um, can you tell me just what you guys do and what your your mission and values are? Yeah, yeah. So so PERC actually stands for the Property and Environment Research Center. Uh, and so we are a research center. We've been, been around uh, for about 40 years. We are based in Bozeman, Montana. Lucky me. Uh, we've always been based in Bozeman, Montana, so we're we were ahead of the curve where everybody's discovering our part of the the universe now. Yeah. Um, but we're actually, I mean, we're we're national and international in scope. We deal with fisheries issues, we deal with African wildlife issues, um, um, and then obviously things very regional to the West. Uh, we're very involved in. But we were we were founded by a handful of outdoor loving economists. Uh, who were out to prove that uh, you could be pro-markets and pro-conservation at the same time. So we've, we are known, you know, mostly around the, around the world and nation as the home of free market environmentalism. 
And like, what does that, you know, what does that mean? Well, it means we're, you know, we're trying to incentivize stewardship, you know, by leveraging markets and property rights to help the environment rather than um, what I would call negative incentives, which are regulation and litigation. So I, you know, it's, it's a voluntary cooperative trade-based conservation model uh, that we like to push. And we think if you can, if you can, if you can make conservation make economic sense for those who want to do the conserving and those who are asking to do the conserving, we think it's probably more durable at the end of the day than perhaps political environmentalism, where we see change in administration creates dramatic sweeps and changes in environmental and conservation policy. Um, and we see that with, you know, going from Obama to Trump to Biden, you know, when you're looking at big issues like bears ears and uh, carbon rules and waters of the U.S. and, you know, it, it uh, you get political whiplash after a while watching things get done, undone, redone, undone. And we think if you can have kind of a market-based approach where uh, everybody wins in a negotiation collaboration, that that kind of conservation is going to last a lot longer and not be subject to politics. Yeah. I was so refreshed to come across some of the, the ideas that you guys have put out because it's always something that I've kind of had a push and pull with. I'm like, I'm a, you know, I'm a devout capitalist and an environmentalist. How do I, you know, sometimes they just don't seem to, to mend. And so um, it's, it's really great to see some of the creative solutions that y'all are putting forward in a, a sort of a think tank uh, kind of way and collaborating and with uh, with all sorts of other publications and offering these free market solutions to really complex issues. You, uh, your experience before this, though, must have given you some insight into some of the issues with, with regulations coming from these federal policies. Can you talk about uh, your previous career path and what led you here? Yeah, so, um, so what really led me here was I had... Um, I had been involved as a as a commissioner for Florida's Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission for about 14 years. So I was a I was a policymaker slash regulator slash fish and wildlife manager in Florida of all places. And I've made my way out to Montana, but we had some really unique issues in Florida, really unique charismatic species we were dealing with. Mm -hmm. And um and prior to that, I had been, I worked for the governor of Florida at the time, who was uh, Jeb Bush. Um, I had some experience as um, as working for Florida's largest private landowner, uh, which was the St. Joe Company at the time. We owned about a million acres of land and managed it, you know, pretty diverse, you know, everything from timber to conservation to development. And hmm. um, so had some experience on the receiving end of government, but what I really thought was interesting was there was this, um, you know, a lot of the conservation model is to come to government and will you fix this? Will you pass a law? Will you pass regulation? Um, PERC actually, a lot of their material I started receiving back in the mid 1990s. And to your point, it was a little counterintuitive, like, oh, capitalism can help conservation. Like, isn't, you know, I'm a capitalist. That kind of resonates. Like, how does that work? And um, being able to see PERC kind of push for models where government models have not been able to work uh, effectively, you know, was really refreshing. And, um, and for somebody sitting in my position as a, as a commissioner, I wanted to try new things. You know, one of the first things that came to me as a fish and wildlife commissioner were fisheries over overfishing. Um, and 
we have this massive tragedy of the commons when it comes to fish because nobody owns the fish and and as fish regulators we would go out and say okay you can fish you know four million pounds of red snapper in the gulf of mexico or whatever you know the number was yeah and whoever got there first and fished it won the prize right so you'd have the beginning of the year derby fishing where everybody they're buying more boats bigger boats better gear whoever could get the most fish and and within a few months we'd have to shut the fishery down because we were already fished out right Uh, yeah and it and it just seemed like you could regulate it you could say okay well now we're going to shorten the season well people are smart they'll buy bigger boats they'll keep adding to their ability to catch fish and so it was this it was this derby and you know there was you know in part because there was no ownership of or no nothing to replicate ownership of a fishery bison were the same way when you think about the west and bison were just there for the taking and if you didn't take the bison somebody else would take the bison so it sort of encouraged waste and uh and overuse um so you think about like are there are there ownership elements that can be created in public policy that can actually help stewardship? And the example we always use is, you know, you think about when well, people might roll their eyes, but like think about a rental car versus the car you own. Like how often do you take your rental car in to get washed? Almost never, <laughs> but the car you own, you'll wash and you'll, most people will wash and take care <laughs> yeah. of. Um, and so, you know, there's, so there is something to, to feeling like you own it or owning something. And so with fisheries, what we were able to do is we knew um, and PERC and Environmental Defense Fund, both of those organizations were bringing these ideas forward that we knew based on commercial fishing um, trip tickets, how, how many fish you landed as a fisherman over a historic period of time. We could go back 10 years, 15 years and say, well, on average, you, you fishermen bring in 100,000 pounds of fish. So what we, so the, so the idea was to set up a, uh, sort of uh, what was called individual fishing quotas, where you actually give a share of the fishery almost as a property right to the fishermen. So you say, okay, well, Dylan, you have 100,000 pounds. That's 1% of the fishery. You own that now. If you want more, you can buy from a fellow fisherman. You can trade with a fellow fisherman. And guess what? If the the fishery does better, if you all steward the fishery better, that 1% is going to be more than 100,000 pounds. That might be 200,000 pounds or 300,000 pounds. So there was like this ownership interest in seeing fisheries being steward. There was no more overfishing. There was no more derby fishing. You know, that was an idea that PERC had brought forward. And uh, again, with Environmental Defense Fund and folks like Ocean Conservancy, came forward and it just was really innovative and thoughtful. And that was my exposure as a policymaker to Perk and to say, boy, I, I'd love to be involved with these guys. Like they're, they're really thinking about what can drive that conservation outcome and result without it just being the narrative, oh, we've got to go regulate and, and do more, uh, more, more heavy handed government uh, in there. Can we set up systems where conservation can thrive in a market-based property rights-based yeah. approach? Yeah, I love that. And, you know, it's it's been sort of, it seems, this uh, this pendulum where we had unregulated commerce leading to uh, massive environmental degradation to our, our waters and our public lands. Uh, and then you get sweeping federal policies that curtail some of that destruction, but uh, they're really clunky. And in some of the ways that um, they become ineffective, and land stewardship is really evident through some of the papers you've published. 
uh, specifically the Managing America's Forests. What's the title mm-hmm. of that? Um, yeah, Fixing America's Forests. Fixing America's Forests. Yeah, you yeah. give all the examples of how essentially the Forest Service has found themselves in this position where they've got a massive backlog of maintenance. They're not really able to take care of these forests because of all these different reasons, all these different economic reasons. And now they're pretty much spending most of their money on fighting fires uh, because right. we've got dense fuel loads. Can you talk about some of the ways that those policies um, become ineffective and don't allow for proper stewardship? Yeah, no, it's it's the forest is this really interesting question because uh, first off, let's start with a little uh, ecology, you know, um, sort of habitat management and forest management. Okay. You know, people have this, they, they drive through the West here and they see these dense forests, you know, lush pine trees all clumped together. And they're, oh, what a beautiful forest. Like that's a healthy forest. That's not historically what a healthy forest has looked like. A healthy forest is, think about maybe Yellowstone where it's more park-like and open and there's grasses underneath and trees are spaced apart. And fire was kind of the natural way that that had happened. You'd have lightning strikes and forest fires within sort of this constant uh, sort of nature's management of forests, uh, of forests that way. At the turn of the last century, uh, in the early 1900s, we had the creation of the U.S. Forest Service and Gifford Pinchot, Theodore Roosevelt put Gifford Pinchot in charge of that. Mm-hmm. And the Forest Service was really having a hard time figuring out like what its role in life would be as a as a nascent, uh, nascent uh, agency. And in 1910, you had this massive wildfire out west here. It was called the Big Burn. And it burned about 3 million acres, uh, mostly on the, the, the Montana-Idaho border. Uh, it killed 87 people. And all of a sudden, the Forest Service had a mission. And the mission was to eradicate wildfire, eliminate wildfire, suppress wildfire at all costs. I mean, the policy at that time was even the goal was to, if a wildfire was spotted, to be put out by 10 a.m. the yeah. next day. I've heard of which that. is the crazy now rule. you think of that. Yeah. The 10 a.m. rule, which is crazy. So all the resources, everything got put into wildfire suppression. Uh, and no resources to really speak of got put into management of the forest, you know, managing the forest for health, doing maybe prescribed low intensity burns that would be more would mimic nature to kind of create healthy forests. So really this this government policy that was led by Smokey the Bear, you know, we got to tie him down and get him thinking right. But yeah. Um, <laughs> and love Smokey. But it created the situation where we have these forests that are just chock full of, of live fuel now that are tinderboxes and government policy on top of government policy, you know, even now, if the Forest Service and the Forest Service is saying, yes, we need to do more hands-on forest management restoration, we've created this Rubik's Cube of federal policy, like through NEPA reviews, you know, environmental permitting, through endangered species consultations, through litigation process that now, even when the Forest Service is saying, you know what, this suppression thing, you know, was fine for us, but we've really got to get in and do some more active management of force. They can't even do it because they go in and they get stopped by the regulatory process, the, the scientific review process, the litigation process that you can have 
projects that make all the sense in the world to better manage a force. And it'll take 20 years to get that project off the ground. Uh, the, you know, think about to put, put it in numbers, you know, the Forest Service manages about 193 million acres of forest land across the nation. 80 million of that, as identified by the Forest Service, is in need of restoration and active management that they're not getting to. Um, 63 million acres of that is deemed high, severe or high risk of wildfire. Um, wow. which is, an, yeah, it's an enormous amount. And, you know, some of it was kind of, you know, when we got into say the 1970s, um, you know, even harvesting in the forest, you know, people recoiled against clear cutting and those kind of practices that were, that were hitting the forest. I mean, you think about it, you know, th and this just kind of compounds a problem like timber sales back in the 19, um, like in 19, even in the 1980s, were like 12 billion board feet, you know, of wood each year. Timber sales right now are 3 billion. I mean, so to go from three, 12 billion to 3 billion, you know, in, in 50, you know, 40 years, 50 years is, um, it, that just kind of adds to the problem. And there's, you know, what's happened is sawmills have been closed because, you know, you had a sort of the Northwest uh, Pacific, you know, Northwest Pacific uh, plan to protect the forest and the spotted owl, which, closed a lot of these mills. So now, even if you're like, okay, we need to go get some of these trees, to the mills, the mills don't exist. Um, we have an export ban on can't export timber out of the United States. Uh, that's that's a policy. I did not know until I read your report. I was like, yeah. what the hell? Why, why would that, how did that come into existence? I, I know, I know. I mean, it was, and, you know, it was, it was, um, you know, a little bit probably of trying, just trying to keep keep timber here uh, for supply reasons and, um, you know, and, and probably some of it was environmental uh, as well. Um, controlled burns, you know, prescribed burns, um, you know, an interesting government policy that trips up. I think, I think if, if you think of a, of a policy that's probably as bipartisan as it gets right now, I think both Democrats and Republicans believe you, we probably need to do more prescribed burn, controlled burns of our forests. Yeah. But we have something called the Clean Air Act, and the Clean Air Act sets emissions standards, particulate emission standards for each state that they have to abide by. If you're in California or, or Oregon and uh, there's a wildfire, the smoke emitted and the particulates emitted in that wildfire or even the carbon doesn't count against your, your cap or standard, right? But if you go to do a controlled burn, it counts against your cap and standard. So the very thing we're trying to encourage more of to keep big catastrophic fires from happening by having these low intensity controlled burns, the Clean Air Act actually says, well, if smoke comes from that, you might exceed your emission standards. And so you have to go through a whole permitting process to ensure that that doesn't happen, which is, yeah. which is kind of a, a perverse negative incentive. So when you, when you look at all these all this red tape to properly managing public lands. Uh, you know, let's talk about some of the solutions that you all are putting forward and some of maybe the case studies that you've uh, identified that really point out how we can form these public private collaborations yeah. to, uh, to achieve this work. Yeah. And there's one, you know, one that's really exciting, you know, some of this is, is where do you get the revenue to do these projects? I think, I think the forest service, you know, we, 
we deal a lot with uh, Chris French, who's the deputy director of the Forest Service. He was acting director uh, of the Forest Service until just recent and spans through administrations. But I think, you know, folks like that would say, you know, revenue and, and the money to do these projects is, is a big is a big issue. And that, you know, we think there's a way to bring in the private sector there. There's a really innovative tool that we've kind of watched in development and, and sort of have promoted from here called Forest Resiliency Bonds. And think of a, one of the big issues in forest management are watersheds and drinking water that urban areas, you know, you, you have like, for example, here in Bozeman, we have a, a reservoir that's outside of town up in the mountains called Highlight. It's the drinking reservoir. It's the Highlight Creek and stream and okay. that comes down there. Um, and if, if you have a real dense forest around there that is mismanaged and you have a big wildfire, that all that sediment and stuff is going to gets into the drinking water system. It can like wreak complete havoc to the, not only the infrastructure there, but to the, to the water for years. And so there's an interest in managing the forest around a place like Highlight Reservoir. What, what um, a group called Blue Forest has found out is that that's pretty common around the country. And in California, uh, they have worked with the Forest Service um, and, and private business to essentially bring capital to the table to go ahead and manage the forest and finance the management of the forest in a place where it might threaten the, the drinking water of, uh, of urban areas. And so what they do is they'll, they'll front the capital, they'll do the work, but you have water utilities that are benefiting from this and the water utility over time will pay a rate of return to Blue Forest you know, as the years go on from the ratepayers. Um, really innovative because it fixes the upfront money that maybe Congress can't get or a state can't get um, and there is a payback over time with a little bit of uh, with a little bit of return. So that's that's an example of of you know the private sector getting more involved and in being able to to help solve this problem where government might not be. Yeah, just kind of following that principle of of providing incentive and in, in private ownership. Yeah. yeah, and then there's the, then there are the regulatory fixes that we cover in the report. You know, you know if you've got if you've got uh, big forest projects that need to be done there are ways to to be exempted from the environmental review process uh, if if it's warranted and they could they're called categorical exclusions and so you know right now there are categorical exclusions for for forest management projects but it's only up to like three thousand acres per project you know so there's you know why not expand that like if there's a project that really needs to be done and it's ten thousand acres or twenty thousand acres um and you might get more private entities interested if it's large acreage to go in and restore versus a little bit of acreage. You know, there's, you know, there's economies of scale here that could benefit having uh, private resources come to bear. You know, why not, why not make that decision that like, in some cases, we need to do, we need to do expedited, you know, reviews to get the work on the ground because the environmental damage threat is so great and, and outweighs, you know, the need to do this really detailed, you know, 3,000 page you know, EIS document that will take years to do and we might lose the forest in that time. And there's evidence all over the place of projects that just got caught in the morass of regulation and the forest is gone now, it's devastated. Like yeah. the wildfires come through and people point to it and said, what, what we could have done had we had the ability to go in and manage those forests better. 
what would it take in the example of um, the timber export law? What would it take to reverse something like that and allow us to uh, extract, you know, this commodity, which would really, really probably incentivize a lot of um, selective harvesting and, and improve our forest health? Yeah, I mean, that's just congressional action. Yeah, that's congressional action to change that. And um, it, it should be on the table. It should be discussed to, to your point, like why that got put into place. Are those dynamics still there, right? And, um, you know, what, what is the negative to being able to export timber at this, at this stage in the game, especially if there's a market for, you know, what, what we're talking about in terms of forest management is not, people oftentimes think of old growth, you know, oh, they're out there harvesting old growth forest. Yeah. A lot of this forest management is small diameter timber. And, and it, there isn't a ton of economic value to it at this point. So folks who are trying to find economic value for small diameter timber, if it's maybe using that timber to create wood pellets to, to burn, you know, to have like little, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, so you're not relying on oil heating, but you're relying on wood pellet stoves like they do in Europe or something okay. like that, that, you know, there might be more markets uh, for that, that will be cleaner, you know, cleaner energy. And, um, but the export ban kind of prohibits that, that kind of creative thinking out there from happening. Um, you know, you've got, you've got wood being incorporated into kind of um, building structures today in terms of concrete, you know, sort of this mix of oh. concrete and wood and, and like literally like high rise buildings being built primarily of wood because you could you can create this um, create this material that can be as as strong as concrete, uh, but using wood to wood products to get there. I don't know about this. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That was one. I mean, um, that report was really illuminating and you guys put forward, I mean, six or eight, um, examples of, of creative solutions that are not that far fetched and make all kinds of sense. So I'd encourage yeah. people to read that report, fixing America's forests, reforms to restore national forests and tackle the wildfire crisis. Really good. You stuff. got a really, really cool cover here too. So shameless, <laughs> shameless plugs. <laughs> Um, and who do you, uh, I know you've got, you guys have an operating staff there, but then you also work with a bunch of academic fellows. How do you get all this work published? Yeah, no, uh, we have an in-house research staff that is really talented, but we also have a, a cadre of about 17, 18 fellows, senior fellows. So these are academics from around the, around the country who are experts in natural resource and environmental econ uh, economics. And then in addition to that, in the summertime, we bring in visiting fellows. So this summer we had 19 visiting fellows at the PERC headquarters. Uh, everybody from graduate students researching elk migrations and national parks policy to more senior uh, academic researchers um, who are looking at issues. And then we have workshops through the course of the year as well too, where we bring experts in to tackle a, a specific policy. So, um, you know, we're doing kind of next generation of water reform, you know, coming up in a workshop here in a couple of weeks. Um, and it's been great because, you know, everybody's been doing virtual stuff. We're starting to dip our toe back into in-person workshops. We just, um, some of your, some of your viewers might uh, appreciate, we did a workshop. There's a little thing called Yellowstone, the TV show that Kevin Costner's in. That, <laughs> I just uh, binged it a couple of weeks so, ago. So, <laughs> well, we, uh, we did a workshop on Yellowstone 
um, where we used some, we, the, the writing in Yellowstone, actually, if you're a Westerner, now granted, there's exaggeration in moments and there's sort of amplification of these issues, but the issues, um, Taylor Sheridan does a really good job of bringing these issues to light that real Westerners are dealing with on a case by case, you know, property rights and water rights and um, Endangered Species Act issues and yeah. uh, depredation uh, by wildlife and compensation funds. And, you know, all these issues, really, if you're a Westerner, you know, it's very authentic uh, that how these are brought to light. So we, we had researchers tasked with identifying scenes in the show that could lead to a, a discussion of, you know, paper that would be presented and, a, and a, ultimately a publication that will tie in the show. And we were lucky enough to have Taylor Sheridan, the show's creator, actually zoomed in for a session with us to talk about how these themes and how these uh, issues are developed. And we also had Luke Grimes, who plays Casey Dutton, in there oh, so nice. come in one of the stars of the show and he came and spent the day with us as well so is that recorded um, i'd like to see that it's not it's not we play by chatham house rules when we do these workshops so that everybody can feel comfortable and talking but uh if you go to our instagram site we do have some pictures with casey and um in, at the perk headquarters at the world perk headquarters here so uh or sorry luke i should say I, everybody's been calling him casey because that's what his character is but luke Grimes, <laughs> great guy came in, spent the day, just was, um, was real engaged. And, uh, yeah, we were real fortunate for that. I guess, uh, Kevin Costner was busy that day. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was like, you know, they said like, if you had to get a top star, I would put Luke like right at the very top, uh, the gentleman who plays Rip, you know, obviously Beth Dutton would be in there too, but no, it would be good for, for the folks who are paying attention to this, uh, in December, we're going to have a special edition. We do a, a, a journal, twice a year and our winter edition of the journal is going to be dedicated to the workshop the yellowstone workshop so it'll be exclusively yellowstone themed uh copy of perk report so look for that in december which will be great uh well you mentioned you've got an, an upcoming workshop about um water reform i did want to ask you about some of the you know i'm new to the west um living in in the rocky mountains here in colorado but um you know, recently moved here and really getting a kind of a crash course in water rights through some of my, my practice in landscape architecture. We've got clients who own reservoirs and have, you know, um, a call will come in for downstream down at Grand Junction. They say, you know, you got to release some water. I'm going, what the hell is all this? It's so, uh, it's so different than what I'm used to. And of course, um, with the, with this historic drought, happening right now, I, I did want to pick your brain kind of on how water policy and water laws could maybe be updated. I mean, some of this stuff, I was recently doing a project where the, um, in, in Utah, where the allocation for landscape irrigation was three acre feet, typically. And that's mm-hmm. a volume that's based on, you know, a hundred year old policy or something where it was like, that's how much water it takes to grow alfalfa. So we're just going to set it, you know, set it and forget it. And right. that's the, that's the rule. Obviously uh, it's not really working. So, uh, yeah. you know, what are the, some of the issues that you think maybe could do with uh, a little bit of reform? Yeah. I, you know, uh, well, you know, to kind of tee up this conversation, you, you, at the outset, you, you mentioned something just called water rights. And I think people who are back East, 
might not even know what that reference is because back east water is not a right. It's not a property right that you own. Yeah. Um, you might have a consumptive use permit, but you can't buy, sell, or trade, you know, the water that you use through a consumptive use permit. It's it's more permission from, from government. Out west, uh water rights were developed in the settling of the West. So it was a it was something called the prior appropriation doctrine where if you were, the expression was first in time, first in use. So if you were the first rancher, cattle rancher in Montana and you were using water, you had the senior water rights uh, to that water, to so much of it. And as more ranchers moved in, they got water rights and they were junior to the senior water rights. So you have this whole elaborate um, property right mechanism for water where water is actually owned by the users of water. When, this, when those laws were set up, uh, the only kind of restriction was that the water had to be deployed for a beneficial use. That was the term in the law. And typically, when we were settling the West, uh, beneficial use meant ranching or farming or um, drinking water, you know, for, for cities or, or for agriculture, pretend, you know, for landscaping and things like that. And if you didn't deploy that water, your water right that you owned, uh, for a beneficial use, you could lose that right. Um, and, and so there's, there was kind of the way this was set, there was a perverse incentive to waste water. You know, you, if you had your water allocation, you weren't using it and you could lose it. Why not just put extra water in your alfalfa field or extra water, you know? Yeah. And that remains. There was no mechanism. Yeah. You know, some of these with, again, back to the residential projects we, we do in landscape architecture, it's, yeah, it's like, this is what your water right is currently. Let's yeah. irrigate the hell out of your land. Otherwise, you're going to lose rights to that water. And you're going to have to prove up on those rights in five to seven years and show that yeah. you've been using them for beneficial use. So like you're saying, it's uh, it's kind of a backward system where it's like, use what you got. Um, yeah. You know, the, the use, same it, or, way use the, it or lose it. Yeah, yeah, the same way that the government treats budgets, you know, yeah. <laughs> spend your money yeah. or you won't get it next year. That's right. But, but the good news is there's a handful of states, and I saw you had um, Chris Wood as a guest on previously from yeah. Trout Unlimited, and he's a, he's a buddy, and, uh, and we do work with Trout Unlimited. You know, one of the ideas that was floated uh, about 25 years ago or so was, well, what if you could change the definition of beneficial use so that that use could be a conservation use, right? So you could, somebody could buy your water not to not to irrigate a field or landscape something, but to leave it in a stream for the benefit of fish, um, especially in a year maybe where there is drought and you're worried about uh, fish species survivals. Could you negotiate with ranchers to actually sell some of their water rights so that um, we could we could have that cold water habitat? And what that required was that that was law changes. I mean, states like Montana needed to change the laws to say beneficial use can include non-use is, is the expression we use. You know, leaving it in the stream is a form of use and you can pay for it and you can negotiate and trade and sell it or lease it. You can lease from a rancher. And so these projects in those states and Trout Unlimited has been a leader in advancing a lot of these projects where they're going around and negotiating with ranchers um, for kind of conservation use, you know, ran and ranchers are getting better. Like these, I was on a ranch here in Paradise Valley yesterday and, you know, these irrigation pivots that they use are so much more water efficient 
today than irrigation of the past um, so that they might be able to save up water to leave for trout in the stream and be able to sell that to an entity like Trout Unlimited. So that's a case, you know, those are water markets and that deals with surface water. But to your point, as we're going forward, the same doesn't apply to groundwater. There are no real property rights right now established in groundwater, which is if, if you don't have a property right to surface water out here in the West, you're sticking a straw in the ground and trying to hit the aquifer. <laughs> and that's where you're getting your water from. And that that's fine, but that could create water shortages as well. And as, as drought, you know, as droughts continue, that is a limited source of water. So there's one of the things, you know, you know, we're talking about doing this water workshop. I know one of the topics that's going to come up is, you know, should there be a similar to how it's been done in some states with surface water, should there be water markets developed for groundwater where in order to have a market, you have to have a property, right? Like, right. Somebody has to own it at the end of the day that you're trading and buying and selling and negotiating with. So you'd have to go out and establish, you know, property rights. I'm a well owner. I'm, I'm probably in a spring and an aquifer for my cabin, um, my cabin over in Paradise Valley. Um, I'm sure I would get an allocation, not a lot, but, a, you know, get an allocation of water that, uh, that I, that I could own, you know? And, so currently and, your water use from that well is not metered at all? No, not okay. at all. That's interesting. All, so. Yeah. It's another yeah. one of these sort of um, paradoxical ideas where you go, well, I don't want people to own water. That water should be for everyone. But, you know, when you put ownership on it, uh, it gets yeah. treated and conserved much more responsibly. Right. And ownership, you know, it's interesting. A lot of these mechanisms, when we're talking about water rights, I mean, water rights are, are a, a pretty strong property right out here. Fisheries rights are a little bit different. It's you know, the term some use were limited access privileges where it's supposed to replicate ownership, but, you know, it could be it could be taken away or modified by government. So there are gradients of ownership. You know, if you can't have just full ownership outright where you have title, you could have um, you could have uh, policies that sort of mimic ownership at the end of the day uh, that yeah. that could get you that same incentive. Like what you're trying to get is not just ownership, but the incentive that goes along with ownership. And that might not entail like a fee, simple title to ownership, right? Like you think about grazing leases and that, you know, that's public land, but you want the cattle rancher to treat that land as if it was their own, you know, and because they have an economic interest on that land, like grazing cattle, they tend to be concerned about trespassers or if there's going to be sage, you know, if there's going to be cheatgrass fires that could, uh, eliminate their livestock herd. They're going to want to manage more for cheap grass and things like that, even though they don't own the land, but there is an ownership interest and, in, uh, you know, in there because they run cattle on it. Absolutely. So in the case of the, um, the trading, the in-stream flows, you've got a, a nonprofit raising money through whatever mechanisms, donations, et cetera, approaching ranchers and saying, we'll pay you not to use that water. Uh, before we started recording, you mentioned another type of, of non-use rights that maybe didn't pertain to water. Could you tell me about that? Yeah, so we are getting ready. It's very exciting here at PERC because in our 40-year history, we've published a lot of research, but we've never had research published in Science uh, Magazine. And Science is kind of the preeminent scientific journal in America. You get in in Science, that's like the gold standard. And next week, we actually have a publication coming out in Science um, on non-use rights, which was which is which is exactly kind of what we were talking about with uh, with the water markets, but how this this could be and and 
we're not writing it alone. We have a, a number of scholars who are who are with us um, from various universities, you know, various really smart folks, uh, as well as the chief uh, economic officer for Environmental Defense Fund is a co-author on this paper too. But this really could be the next frontier of conservation. We think about like conservation easements and how that revolutionized private land conservation. Non-use rights can revolutionize public land conservation as well. And the gist of it, if you think about it, much like how water rights were set up, how the federal government and even state governments lease natural resources for extraction is a vestige that goes back close to 100 years. You know, grazing is the Taylor, you know, the Taylor Grazing Act was in the 1930s. And they were all set up as like use it or lose it systems. So when the federal government goes to lease oil and gas leases on public land, or when they go to do a timber lease on public land, or they go to lease grazing rights on public land, all of those systems are set up as use it or lose it. If you're not grazing, you will lose that lease. If you're not extracting the oil and gas, you will lose that lease. If you're not harvesting timber, you will lose that, that lease on federal land. Um, conservation groups are not allowed to bid. The way the rules are set up right now, they're not allowed to bid and to, to not use that land. So uh. an example might be um, the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge, which has been this battle royale for 50 years over whether the federal government should allow oil and gas extraction in the refuge. This recent, the recent administration, Trump administration, finally said, yes, we're going to allow drilling in the refuge. We're going to put it out to bid to the oil and gas companies. They put out a half a million acres to bid, and the winning bid came in, and it was only $14 million. Now, all the environmental organizations that have been fighting to stop drilling in the refuge could have come up with $15 million probably in five minutes <laughs> to have bought that lease to not do drilling in the refuge, but they weren't allowed to do it. The rules were set up that they're, they're not allowed to do non-use, right? They're not, that's wow. not a beneficial use. So this paper talks about, you know, if, if, if we were able to change the laws and regulations to allow conservationists to bid alongside of oil and gas companies or timber or grazing, you know, it would be interesting. It would be a market-based approach to do conservation because the alternative is these groups are just going to go litigate. They're going to go regulate. You know, it's going to be a top-down command and control approach to stop these activities. Whereas if they had the ability to put their money where their mouth is, that you would have this market-based approach. And it wouldn't work all the time. Like, you know, I tell people, you're not going to outbid the oil and gas company, but let's take like elk migrations in the West or pronghorn migrations, mule deer migrations. There may be places where the federal government is looking to do leases that are really sensitive to migration. We know the science through GPS collaring of where those herds are going through. That might be an area where environmental groups and conservationists get together and sportsmen's groups get together and say, we're going to raise the money to outbid there. And the oil and gas company say, you know what, I'm going to go somewhere else to do the bidding um, yeah. where I don't have competition. And, uh, and, and in that case, the conservation groups might prevail and, you know, it'd be a great way to do conservation, again, in that kind of voluntary side. Yeah, what would be the argument against that? Is it purely economical that saying, you know, um, outbidding this consumptive use and, and paying for non-use would stifle economic growth and take away X amount of jobs? Is that really the argument against 
such a thing? No, I think, you know, I think when these laws were set, there, there will be arguments against it today. But when the laws were set up, this was done because we were trying to encourage resource extraction at the time in all these areas. Like we wanted, think about the grazing lands, like the, the Bureau of Land Management lands that are grazed today were the unwanted lands. Like these were the lands that the homesteaders came on and realized they couldn't make it. And they essentially walked away from the land and it went back to the government. So we were trying to encourage more grazing. Like we were saying cattle producers come and use this land and this is how, this is how we're gonna set the rules up. I don't think we envisioned a time where conservation was going to be an industry or, a, or an economic driver like it is today. So the rules just haven't caught up with where the market and where demand and where preferences are. Um, I'll give you an example. Here in Montana, we had uh, right outside Bozeman. So, so the ability to, to bid against a timber company actually exists in Montana. Um, they call it a conservation license. And it has to do with state. The state owns land. They're called state trust lands. And the state has a responsibility to generate revenue from those lands to help fund education. This goes back into the mid 1800s uh, when these lands were provided to provided to the states by the federal government. Um, so in Montana, there was this 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 law that said, you know, if you were a conservation group and the states putting a parcel out to bid for timbering, you can you can bid alongside a, a timber company to not harvest that that timber. Okay. So. Bozeman, right outside Bozeman, Montana here, there was the state was was getting ready to put out at least a timber project that was within view shed of downtown Bozeman. And a group emerged called Save Our Gallatin Front, the Gallatin Mountains or what's out here. And they went the typical route. They tried to sue. They went into court. You know, they tried every kind of regulatory top down way to stop the project from going forward. And they kept losing at every opportunity. Well, you know, Perk, among others, kind of said, you know, here's another way to do it. You can raise the money and outbid these guys. And, and that, that might be your last best option at this point, but it's an option that's out there. So the Save Our Gallatin front group went out and they said, okay, well, we're going to give this a go. The bid got put out to bid. The timber company, I think the minimum bid was supposed to be $375,000. And I think the timber company, which was used to not having competition, bid $376,000. <laughs> Um, save our Gallatin front bid $400,000 and they got the bid. Now they had to go get the money, right? Because <laughs> they didn't have the money. They, they won the bid. They had to go get the money. It was for a 25 year lease. So for 25 000. years, yeah, $400,000 to not timber for 25 years in this area. It was like a 500 acre area. Huh. Um, and they set up a GoFundMe account and they raised $450,000 in three weeks. Wow. Crazy. Yeah. So that's the, you know, so that's the powers. Like sometimes, you know, and, and you can imagine here's Bozeman. We've got people who don't want to see the view shed done. You know, you've got wealthy, you've got some wealthy people here. You've got people who are environmentally active and all those folks were the people contributing at the end of the day to not do, not do the harvest here. The punchline is that Montana's legislature meets every other year and the next legislative session uh, language was floated to eliminate the ability to do this, to essentially repeal the conservation license program for the state. It wasn't going to impact this project because it was already done, but for all future projects going forward, 
Yeah. And that repeal passed. Um, and it passed in a bipartisan way, which was shocking. Our legislature is Republican and they were the, you know, the legislature passed it. And then the Democrat governor at the time, Steve Bullock, actually signed the repealer in there to eliminate the ability of conservation groups to bid. Now, you wrote an article, um, I believe, on this on this issue that I read um, that was where you were drawing parallels to the American Prairie Reserve Project, which right. I know you've been involved with or, or that you're, uh, you know, have written on. And, right. and that's essentially their entire method for for what they're Correct. trying to do. They're purchasing up private land. And mm -hmm. so what you're saying is this bill eliminates or threatens private property rights, essentially, right? For nonprofits. Yeah. yeah. Well, this and that particular repeal only had to do with state land. So okay. bidding on state land. Yeah. Yeah. American Prairie Reserve. I mean, you 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 hit it. You know, American Prairie Reserve is another version of non-use rights that we talk about here. So, you know, this was a project that the vision was to to be able to to restore three million acres of prairie uh, ecosystem in central Montana by buying ranches by buying you know from willing sellers you know willing buyer willing sellers using private donation dollars to actually buy some of these ranches and return it to um, essentially bison you know to graze to graze the prairies to to uh, maintain the health of the prairies. And retire, you know, the, the the cattle leasing. The way American Prairie Reserve has been able to do this is um, they buy they buy these ranches, and the ranches generally come with grazing rights to Bureau of Land Management lands that are attached to the ranch. And so, when you buy a ranch for fifty thousand, you know, you you might buy a ranch for fifty thousand acres. Ten thousand acres of that ranch is fee simple. It's it's the property of the ranch, and then another forty thousand of grazing rights on Bureau of Land Management land go along with that. What's interesting is that's capitalized in the value of the ranch, right? It's almost like a property right, that grazing lease. I mean, gotcha. if it wasn't yeah. a property right, you know, that ranch is only worth 10,000 acres of grazing, not 50,000 acres. When that ranch is sold, it's worth 50,000 grazing. And I'm not sure there's a rancher that would want to undo that market because they become instant, instantly impoverished in like, if you don't call that a property right. But um, they don't want it to be accessible to nonprofits. That's right. They don't. They don't want it, and and that's where we'll get to another law that kind of perversely works against markets. Markets here, but it, it's a pretty controversial project because we do have a culture of cattle ranching in Montana, and these these ranching communities are going through a hard time. So that that is that is totally valid, and kind of the the fix for not having ranches sold is to go to try to legislate <laughs> to not have ranches sold. So the legislature, there was actually a bill that got flowed this past legislative session that prohibited a not-for-profit from owning any more than 80 acres of land. That's uh, what I, yeah, okay, that's what I That was, was the one you were thinking of, yeah. And they actually went into committee. You know, the funny thing about that is the law of unintended consequences, you know, the groups that were pushing for that limitation sort of forgot that, you know, our electric co-ops that provide us electricity are not-for-profits. So <laughs> all that utility stuff, acreage that you need to run transmission lines and whatnot is uh, owned by a not-for-profit. They forgot that organizations like the Wounded Warriors have, you know, ranches out here to, to heal, you know, soldiers, um, you know, through sort of nature therapy 
uh, cancer organizations the same way are out here. There's just a whole slew of not-for-profits that own more than 80 acres of land. And so oh, yeah. um, it was a, it was a beat down. <laughs> the, law didn't, the law oh. didn't make it. I think the vote was like 18 to nothing against it in committee. There was, it was 17 to one. And then the one legislator switched, switched their vote. So it made it 18 to nothing, but. Good. Good. It's unconstitutional, right? It is. And it's tough, you know, like, look, the, the American prayers, you know, the interesting thing about the American prayers are when we talk about non-use rights is, um, you know, use it or lose it. Remember we talked about grazing, like you've got to use it or lose it. So the American prairie reserve right now, either has to run cattle on the land that they're buying, which they still do, they still lease to cattle ranchers, or they have to run bison. And they prefer to run bison. But the reason that's not use it or lose it is that bison in the state of Montana is considered livestock. Yeah, It's not wild. And so the fact that it's livestock means you could displace cattle with bison. And as long as you're running bison, the use it or lose it provisions don't, don't apply. So. That's interesting. So you think they'll try to attack that next, that classification of bison? Well, it's funny because they don't want wild bison. The flip side is, you know, there's a whole big, you know, the ranchers are scared to death um, of brucellosis, you know, which is a disease that bison can transmit that come out of Yellowstone. If you create wild free ranging bison, that's, that's not something the ranchers uh, would want. That's, that's a policy that they have fought that environmental groups have actually pushed to have bison wild and free ranging. So it's a catch 22, you know, they don't want them as wild and, and having them as livestock actually works against, you know, works against uh, the cat, you know, cattle ranchers that are opposed to American Prairie Reserve also. So this is a, another topic of your research. There's a film you all put out called Elk in Paradise, yeah. uh, where you're talking about this exact sort of wildland and ranching interface. Um, yeah. In this case, elk in Montana's Paradise Valley a great ecosystem for them. Mm-hmm. They migrate down into the valley bottom, which is all agricultural use ranching. And you have this conflict where they're, you know, destroying fences. People are afraid of them transmitting brucellosis. Um, tell me about some of the, the solutions that you guys put forward for that conflict. Yeah. And, and we've been working really close with the cattle ranching, the cattle production ranching community in Paradise Valley. So, so you're, fo- you're right. We have 20,000 elk, roughly, probably more in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem that spend a portion of the years, year generally in the national park. In the, in the summertime, they're up in high alpine plateaus where the grass is good. And when the winter snows start to come in the fall and winter, those elk are pushed down off the high country into the valley bottoms. And the valley bottoms are owned by ranchers. And that migration reverses itself in the spring as the snows start to recede and little grass shoots start to come up higher and higher. The elk follow those grass shoots back into, because that's what they want. They want fresh new grass back into the park. And they call that surfing the green wave is the expression. Oh, they call it, that. <laughs> which is really cool. And these elk migrations are epic. I mean, these are some of the largest land mammal migrations in the lower 48. Um, yeah. The challenge is when they do get down on private land in these ranches, as you noted, they do bring a cost with them. Uh, and the cost is usually fully borne by the rancher. And that's fences getting knocked down. That's that's the alfalfa and hay crop that the rancher is going to use to get his herd, his or her herd through the winter. Um, that's impacted. And they bring brucellosis, this disease we talked about with bison, 
Fice and transmit brucellosis to elk, and then elk are the vector that take it out of the national park and into now, the cattle herd. Transmission events, though, into domestic cattle are extremely rare, right? They're they are rare, but they are also they do happen. And okay. um, what generally happens is you will have how the transmission works is if the elk and cattle are commingling um, during during the cabin season you will have uh, elk that might abort a calf and that aborted fetus sits in the field. A cow will come up. Cows are intuitively curious. I mean, they will, they will gather around, they'll sniff it, they'll lick it. That's where the transmission occurs. Okay. And if that disease gets to cattle, the economic consequence is that cow becomes dry, meaning that the cow can't carry a calf and aborts its fetus, which to a cattle rancher that is in a cow-calf operation is economically devastating. And, and what will happen is there's lots of testing for brucellosis out here. So if you get a test and you test positive for brucellosis, you'll have to put your cattle into quarantine. And there's been research out of Wyoming that shows, you know, to do one year of quarantine on a herd of, say, 500 cattle is $150,000, all being borne by the rancher. So, wow. you know, we've been working with ranchers here on how to separate you know, we, we believe, I mean, kind of this is what we said. There's a market to help ranchers here. There are people who love elk. Tourists love elk. Conservationists love elk. Sportsmen, hunters love elk. Um, and they want to see these elk herds, but they don't want to see it done on the backs of ranchers and on the shoulders of ranchers. And the, the consequence that everybody knows here is that if a rancher can't make the ranch economics work, that ranch goes into development potentially. We go back so, to Yellowstone. <laughs> back to Yellowstone. So you yeah. could have the most hardened rancher in the most, you know, most liberal environmentalists out there. And there's agreement. There's a common ground there. And I call it a market, you know, where there's the ability for, for this side to say, what can we do to help you offset the cost that you bear by providing public, you know, private habitat for this public wildlife that benefits so much of so many of us. So we've been talking to ranches, ranch by ranch, on are there are there these elk occupancy agreements? Are there ways that we can fund during those critical times of year the separation of elk and cattle? Uh, down in Jackson, there was an elk occupancy agreement where, in working with the rancher, the group that was working with, it, literally moved the cattle ranch to a different piece of property 75 miles away during the calving season, during those critical three or four months and then paid to move the cattle back. The rancher was thrilled with that and didn't have to pay a dime to actually yeah. make that happen. We're working with a rancher where we're building a fence to keep, this rancher is actually going to seed part of their ranch to elk. They're gonna say, we're gonna give up part of our ranch to elk, but we need a fence to keep the cows off of the part of land that the, that the elk would love, where there's native grass, where elk will come down and use as a winter range the cows get up there first, they eat all that grass and there's nothing really there for the elk. So, you know, the cost of a fence to do that separation is going to create an elk habitat at the end of the day. And it's because somebody was able to come in and help that rancher with the cost of fencing that's enabling that to happen. Every rancher is going to be different. Like each of these are going to look different. Um, and then the other tool we're looking at is, is brucellosis, right? And what a rancher fears is the cost associated with a big brucellosis outbreak we think there's like a risk instrument, like a compensation fund or an insurance fund that could be paid for by conservationists and foundations who want to see these elk herds that would cover the cost of a brucellosis outbreak 
should it happen for these ranchers? So like a prophylactic compensation fund, say in Paradise Valley, that's paid for by conservationists, as you noted, the outbreaks are not frequent. So it wouldn't take a gob of money to create a fund that in the event it happened, you could help compensate the rancher for that cost. And that's the what you hear from the ranchers, even the ranchers who haven't contracted brucellosis, is the specter and fear that it could happen. And what would happen to that ranch at that time? Would I have to yeah. sell my herd? Would I have to sell my land? If there was peace of mind set up through an elk compensation fund or a brucellosis bond, you know, is another term we've used, that rancher sleeps easier at night. The economics works knowing that there's going to be financial relief there at the end of the day. And, and by the way, that financial relief is going to be privately driven. So it's not, oh, I got to run you through a government program that's going to, you know, take all kinds of paperwork and months and months to get a settlement done. That could be tapped right away if we do this right. I love it. Yeah, these are great ideas. You know, I in the last few months uh, doing this show, I'm learning so much about the power of working lands and ranchers uh, when it comes to conservation, because they are on that wildland interface and they have mm -hmm. such a massive influence. But like you said, um, they can't always steward the land in the most sustainable way because it could cost them their ass if they, you know, right. um, if they find themselves in a situation like that, where they just, they're so vulnerable all the time economically. And so finding ways to give ranchers peace of mind and allowing them to steward the land uh, in those ways is, is so crucial. I'm in the Roaring Fork Valley here near Aspen, similar issues, you know, similar yeah. demographics to Bozeman. You've got these multi-generational ranches that um, no one wants to see them parceled out into little ranchettes. You know, it's, it's disastrous. Yeah. You, you know, it's funny. Uh, your, your, your podcast is called Land Ethic Podcast. So I assume you're a disciple and student of Aldo Leopold. I am. I've got a few quotes here, but uh, <laughs> go ahead. Well, exactly. So, so, you know, Aldo Leopold, about the time he wrote The Land Ethic, wrote an essay called Conservation Economics. Um, and they kind of go side by side. If you look at, at the books, they, they almost run next to each other. And in Conservation Economics, you know, he, he wrote the line, conservation will ultimately boil down to rewarding the private landowner who's conserving the public interest. That's so funny. And that's what this is all about. That's the yeah. name of the game, right? Yeah, I have that quote right in front of me. I was going to read it to you. You beat me to it. <laughs> <laughs> I got another one for you. He said, uh, things that are done wholly by government are really not done because any decent land use is worthwhile, not only for its effect on the land, but for its effect on the owner. If the owner is an impersonal government, nobody is benefited except for the government employee. You right. know, it's all tied in with this um, private incentive, which is why I'm so attracted to y'all's work. Real quick, I did almost forget to ask you about the feral horse issue. If Do you have time to talk yeah. about that? Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is a, we have an issue with wild horses on our public land. Um, you know, if you think of our public land as what, what is the, what is appropriate for grazing and overgrazing by horses and horses are these prolific grazers, you know, they were introduced by the Spanish onto federal lands. Um, and we have a situation now where we have, you know, the, the, the range experts in the federal government will tell you with the federal public lands, they could probably really only sustain about 25,000 horses and burrows on those public lands in terms of grazing. If you start getting above that, you're going to impact watering holes, you're going to impact grasslands, which has an impact on pronghorn antelope and elk and sage grouse and a whole bunch of other species that could easily 
revert into an endangered species uh, scenario here. So ecologically speaking, getting a, a grip around wild horse grazing in the West is a, is a huge issue. The challenge is we don't have 25,000 horses on the range. We have 90,000 horses on the range. I mean, we've blown through three times the amount. Think of carrying capacity. You know, biologists yeah. like to talk, wildlife biologists talk about carrying capacity. We're, we're way over carrying capacity. You know, if you're a horse lover, what that means is you see starving horses. If you live in Nevada, the picture isn't of a free ranging horse running, you know, stallion running. It's of horses starving around watering holes with rib cages sticking out. And we're talking it's almost, about BLM lands in the arid West, right? That's right. BLM lands in the arid West. And um, so, you know, it's a real challenge. Like, how do we how do we bring the numbers down to more appropriate levels that are healthy for horses? They're also healthy for the ecosystems. One of the ideas that our PERC researchers floated, because we're economists mostly, we have a lot of economists, was thinking about how you could have more adoptions of wild horses. And the old federal policy was that they would charge to actually have you adopt. You know, they had these auctions that would actually charge you to adopt a horse. Uh, and not, not many horses were getting adopted. And by the way, the horses that you adopt, what, what is currently happening is they're in addition to the 90,000 horses that are on the range, there are 50,000 additional horses that have been rounded up and put in these holding pens. So we've got 50,000 horses that are in these pens that are waiting for something, you know, to be adopted or they spend the rest of their lives in these holding pens. Being um, fed and, and taken care of on tax dollars. On tax dollars to the tune of about $28,000 per horse over the life of a horse. Wow. You know? So this is a this is a huge problem that taxpayers are paying for. So it makes all the sense in the world if we could get these horses privately adopted, that that puts the horse in the best possible condition, and it also relieves taxpayers of of this problem. So one of the ideas that Perk had in some of its research a number of years ago was, well, why don't why doesn't the government pay an adoption incentive? You know, rather than charging to adopt a horse, pay folks to adopt the horse. Uh, and you could, at the end of the day, if you got that horse adopted, you're going to save taxpayers a whole lot of money, much more than what the adoption incentive is. So the previous administration actually kind of took up that research and the Bureau of Land Management implemented a $1,000 adoption incentive mechanism uh, and put that in place. And the way it would work is at the time you would adopt the horse, you would get $500. And then about 12 or six, 16 months after you adopted the horse, BLM would come back out, check to make sure the horse was okay, and that it's, you know, living a great life and all that, and you get the second $500, and then you get titled to the horse and you adopt it. Um, they went ahead and put the program in place. In one year, horse adoptions increased by 90, 90%, wow. uh, almost 100% increase. Um, and what that meant numbers-wise was it was, it roughly went from like 3,000 plus horses, you know, being adopted to, you know, to around 6,000, 7,000 horses that were being, being adopted. And um, the savings to taxpayers, as BLM calculated, was they were projecting about $170 million savings to taxpayers uh, through this adoption zone in just the one year. Uh, what, and what that meant, I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about a 90,000 horse problem and six or 7,000 horses getting adopted may not sound like a lot, but the but the the leaders at the BLM at the time that were implementing this program 
who who they were kind of in the minority as they were implemented. There were a lot of skeptics inside the agency itself, and they powered through and did it. Is that if you could get the incentive right and get maybe ten thousand adoptions a year instead of seven thousand adoptions, that's the growth of the herd on the range. So you would curtail, you would stem the growth, and and the problem wouldn't keep growing. Yeah. So it's not it's not the silver bullet that fixes everything, but it's gonna keep the problem from escalating further and further. And it's proven itself to be a really good, good deal. And I know I've got a friend down in Wyoming who um, it's, this is a great story. Uh, he actually works with the, the TV show Yellowstone and some of the cast, you know, doing the horse training, but there were four horses. They went to a BLM uh, sale and the BLM representative pointed to four horses and said, those horses you'll never break. They were the unbreakables. I'm not even going to give you the incentive. I'm not going to let you take that horse away. And these two brothers uh, talked the BLM agent. No, give us give us a chance. Give us the incentive. We'll take these horses. So they took the horses. I would say it was maybe like four or five weeks later. The BLM agent showed up at their ranch out of curiosity. He said, "Where are my babies? Where are the unbreakables? I want to see them." They were sitting on the horses. <laughs> he didn't know it. They had broken these horses. So I was at an event down in uh, Wyoming, uh, an economic summit, and they were doing a pre-dinner, um, you know, sort of ride of honor out there to honor the American flag. One of those four unbreakable horses was one of the flag carrying horses. And I got to spend time with that horse. And that horse, when that horse was on the range, it was a small filly. It was about a three-year-old, three-year-old filly. She just used to get the tar kicked out of her. So she had scars all up and down her hide from where other horses had just sort of ganged up and beat on her. And that made her, that made her pretty tough, pretty tough and nasty. She was kind of the most lovable horse I had ever seen. Like the ability to sit there and pet her and think this was a horse, you know, wild from the range who had been, you know, just had the tar kicked out of her, who now has a great owner who loves her, who's taking care of her and is living a great life. I mean, that, that, you know, if you can replicate that across the rest of America, we've done some really good things there. That's super cool. I love the idea of that program. I'm also a little bit uh, torn because after speaking with Dan Flores, the, the historian and writer, we were just talking about how horses evolved on this continent and they, you know, they, belong and adapt so well to this landscape, but obviously there are ecological consequences to, to letting them roam free. Um, yeah. Well, they really, they don't have predators. You know, that's the yeah. other thing. Most other species have, have predators that can kind of control populations and because this was non-native. Um, and, and again, folks want to see horses. I mean, this is, this is the symbol of America. Um, just too much of a good thing can be a bad thing. Absolutely. So uh, the Great American Outdoors Act recently passed, which funds mm-hmm. the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Uh, this 30 by 30 initiative was put forward. Mm-hmm. With your experience in, in you know, the, on the federal side of things and with the work you do now, um, can you kind of give me your interpretation of this administration's goals, conservation goals, and, um, you know, what we might see as a result? Yeah, so the big... Their big initiative is, it's been actually rebranded. It's now called America the Beautiful, but most folks in the conservation world know it as 30 by 30. Um, it's, it's kind of the moon, it, you know, I call it, you know, it's President Biden's moon, eco moonshot, so to speak, uh, in the sense that he would like to conserve 
30% of America's land and water resources by 2030. And that's a big goal. But there's a lot, there's a lot that kind of goes into that. Where right? are we at right now? Like 12%? 12%. So, but 12% references protection. Like that's officially defined as protected land. So if you think of national parks, if you think of wilderness areas, if you think of conservation easements in perpetuity, that would qualify in the 12%. That's protection. Okay. But protection and preservation is different than conservation. And the word that the administration used was conservation. Well, you know, you being a disciple of Aldo Leopold, you know, you were just reading great quotes. You know, conservation can mean use, you know, multiple use, wise use, working lands, hunting and fishing on those lands, timbering on those lands. You know, our Forest Service lands currently don't fall under the 12% right now because they're not technically protected. But I think most of us would say they're conserved. You know, these yeah. are these are lands that are managed for multiple uses uh, in a way that um, is sustainable in the long term for those lands. Those those lands aren't going to be out there being sold or developed or, you know, any of the any of the things that you would think would be anti-conservation. So if if the metric is now conservation, that changes. We may be there. I, I don't know. We may be at 30 percent. If you start including national forests in there, you might be at 30 percent already. The other interesting dynamic is if if we are trying to get if 12% really is the baseline and we've got to get another 18% that's 440 million acres of land that you have to protect and and that's four that's more than four times the size of California that's a that's a huge number that's going to implicate private land there's not going to be right. enough western public land and and the exercise remember the exercise here as they've advanced is biodiversity, like they're trying to get biodiversity. Well, Western lands may not be as biodiverse as lands in the Southeast United States. There's high, if you look at the, the heat maps of biodiversity, the highest biodiversity in the United States is in the Southeast. And that's all private land. So there's going to be this interface with private land. And it's how do you, how do you, you know, we would say the exercise if it's going forward is how do you make private land count through markets and not mandates at the end of the day, because I think landowners are scared to death. You know, they're hearing from, from some quarters that this is a big federal land grab. And I think the onus is on the administration to prove that this isn't a federal land grab, that this is a way to recognize the conservation that these working land stewards are already providing today. And, and we were actually, we were happy to see in, in the America, the beautiful report, which is kind of the only public sort of uh, public dissemination of the 30 by 30 right now, that there were guiding principles in there that talked about honoring and respecting property rights, you know, ensuring that conservation efforts under this initiative would be voluntary and incentive-based and locally led uh, type language. So, Good. you know, in the, in the document, they're, they're saying the right things. The, the challenge is going to be, are they delivering the right things? And I think What's interesting, especially with this administration, is there's there's going to be an internal struggle here. You've got sort of moderate conservation types who 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 represent that language, and then you might have folks who are more on the progressive side who want to be more aggressive, who might fall back to designations and regulations and things. And I think there's there's this tug of war. We don't see it in the public so much, but we did see it in this document when this document came out. There were progressive environmental folks who are going to be representing administration 
who are upset that it didn't go far enough or that it used language like conserve rather than preserve. So there's going to be this dynamic inside of, of two different visions of the world. And those visions of the world, conservation versus preservation, that's nothing new. That's gone back. That's a hundred year, that's a hundred year old discussion. That's Theodore Roosevelt and John Muir, right? Sitting at yeah. table. And some side's going to win, but the if the private landowner is is the badminton that goes back and forth, that's that's a bad place to be. Like we, I think the administration would do well by coming straight out and they kind of have a saying like, look, this is not going to be a regulatory exercise on private land whatsoever. Uh, it's going to be a way to recognize and reward private landowners uh, because they haven't been counted. You know, one of the things I say out West and you've moved out here and given where you are, you, you can drive around the West and see just spectacular private land that is managed so incredibly. These elk, these lands where elk come down out of Yellowstone in Paradise Valley is some of the most gorgeous landscape in America. Most of those ranchers are not in a federal program. A lot of those ranchers aren't doing conservation easements. You know, for some reason, if it's not in a federal program or receiving federal dollars, or it's not in a conservation easement, it doesn't count as conservation. Like that's the way we think. Yeah. It's, it doesn't count. Well, why doesn't it count? Like, why shouldn't we say what you're doing here today is great. And as long as you keep doing it, you count as conservation. And we're gonna help you try to keep doing that in ways that doesn't have to involve a federal program or you know some kind of legal document to lock you in for the rest of your life doing it, you're doing great right now. And, and so we've got to change our mindset. We've got to redefine conservation in the 21st century to be more flexible, to say there's really great things going on in this country and we should recognize you know, what a lot of these working lands are doing today. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that because when I first um, started seeing that report, I wasn't exactly sure what to make of it either in terms of, you know, you mentioned people interpreting that as a land grab. That's kind of where my brain went at first as well as like, where where are they proposing getting that extra land or protecting that that extra land? So um, I'm glad to hear you acknowledge that. Um, well, Brian, I've taken up enough, enough of your time, but um, I really appreciate you agreeing to speak with me. I've learned a lot from reading Elle's work and from speaking to you. And uh, I just, I really appreciate your optimism. Um, I know that uh, that's not always common among environmentalists, but uh, you guys are really kind of, you know, instead of whining about the problems, you guys are putting forth common sense solutions. So um, really excited to find you guys and to support you guys. If other people would like to support uh, Perk or kind of find out about some of your work, where should they go? Yeah, well, uh, go to www.perk.org is great. We have uh, we have a Twitter account, we have Facebook, we have Instagram. Perk Conserves is our Instagram account. Um, we love people to support us. I mean, come you know, like you did, Dylan. Come look at some of our stuff on the on the webpage there. And the other thing is, in, in, you know, it's sort of a call to invite. We partner with other conservation organizations, other conservationists. Um, you know, we're always looking for ways because we're collaborative. That's kind of how markets are. So we're collaborative in nature. So uh, so those partnerships are valuable to us. And if you have any researchers out there, um, we do have research fellowships. I mentioned those summer fellowships. Uh you know, we, we've had uh, one of my graduate fellows this year, I was just before I jumped on your podcast, she was doing a presentation on elk migration. She's an elk ecologist from Cal Berkeley who works under Arthur Middleton, who's perhaps the top elk uh, migration researcher in, uh, in America. Mm -hmm. And she was just doing a presentation. So we have opportunities for graduate students and 
researchers, scholars who are doing research in this area to come spend the summer with us where we actually pay them to come and, and be in Bozeman in the summer. I've got to change that business model. They ought to be paying us to yeah. come and spend the summer at Bozeman. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, uh, cool. I really appreciate your time and uh, look forward to seeing some of the upcoming work that you mentioned um, in the journal and, and your workshops. Great. Thank you, Dylan. Be well. This has been fun. All right. Likewise, Brian. Take care. Take care.